0: Hey y'all, it's Babette here. You know, at the bottom of an article where you'll sometimes see an asterisk and a correction of something that was previously stated in that article? Well, basically, that's what I'm doing right now. Full transparency, I have a couple corrections of things that I said in previous episodes brought to you by my mom and dad. In the very first episode, the playlist episode, I said that Gil Scott-Heron was from the Bay.
1: Gil Scott-Heron was not from the Bay Area. Um, Gil Scott-Heron actually was born in Chicago, but my sister, who was in the Black Panther Party at the time, met him um, on the East Coast in New York. So I believe you misunderstood... When I indicated that Gil Scott Heron was invited to my sixteenth birthday party, you thought that he lived in the Bay Area, but actually it was that he along with his group was performing in the San Francisco Bay Area.
0: And in our last episode, I said that George Clinton was a protege of James Brown.
2: Oh, you referred to George Clinton as a protege of James Brown and George Clinton wasn't really a protege of James Brown, it was Bootsy. That was a protege of James Brown. Bootsy played in James Brown's band.
0: Well, there you have it. Thanks, Mom and Dad. Now, on to the episode. Estelle Butler would go on long walks in Pasadena, California, just outside of Los Angeles, the place where she was born in 1947. She'd walk up the steep 210 highway past the backdrop of California mountains. A couple blocks north of old Pasadena, past the picket fences, the manicured lawns, and all the affluence, we find a very different landscape a working-class one, where our dear friend Estelle Butler grew up. Estelle knew that she would become a writer someday. She even wrote it down.
3: I write to live and live to write. We must become a writer, one who writes for a living, as well as a way of life, one who sells regularly.
0: Coming from a working class family, she had to map out the practical parts of how she would accomplish her dream. She often wrote out the math of her life, the math of survival. She'd write out her grocery lists and figure out how she could work her jobs and still write in the wee hours of the morning at 2 a.m. She'd pawn things off and she'd borrow money from her mom.
3: What can I pawn quickly and for about how much? Tape recorder, $15. Red typewriter, $15. Small television, $15. $45. That's exactly half of what I need to pay the rent alone.
0: Estelle Butler was a Californian who never had a car. She relied on bus passes and timetables. She'd use that time on the bus to take in the landscape all around her, to get material for her writing. She'd ride the bus throughout the city and across Los Angeles and take in everything, all of the streets she would pass and all the side conversations that she would hear. She religiously wrote down the things that she saw,
3: something like a human notebook. Golf ball-sized, unripened green, apples, nearly tennis ball-sized pomegranates, smaller green lemons, oleander blooming.
0: On her journey to becoming a writer, Estelle constantly faced rejection. She had to build herself up. She had to go from Estelle Butler to Octavia, her writing persona. Her and her mom actually had the same name. Her mom was Octavia Margaret, and she was Octavia Estelle, so she went by Estelle. She saw Estelle as the private version of herself, the one who was quiet and soft-spoken. Octavia was the public her, the one who liked recognition. In her own words,
3: I can choose to dominate or not dominate any situation. I'm in already. As Octavia, I might choose to dominate even more. Act tough and confident and don't talk about your doubts. I didn't talk about mine at the time. I couldn't, but I thought about them over and over again. I learned all of these details about
0: Octavia Butler's life from scholar and writer Linnell George's book, A Handful of Earth and a Handful of Sky. She spent years going through Octavia Butler's personal archive of notes and papers. Octavia Butler was an oracle. She was an author of science fiction books that tell the future of the world that we live in, books like Parable of the Sower, where California is on fire.
1: Tonight,
3: hellish fires ravaging the Sequoia National Forest.
0: Resources like water are scarce.
1: Now to the bone dry conditions
0: up and down the West Coast tonight, and the fears that an already bad drought could get even worse once. The- and gated communities are owned by privatized corporations. She wrote Black Women at the Center of These Stories of Science Fiction like Lauren in Parable of the Sower, who started to notice all of these declining conditions in California and was forced to flee for survival, walking up the highway like Octavia herself, back on the 210. Along the way, she founds a religion called Earthseed.
3: All that you touch, you change. All that you change, changes you. The only lasting truth is change.
0: Octavia would research obsessively for her books about how the earth and the landscape around her were changing the ongoing and evolving histories of this land. Octavia said that the key to good science fiction writing is
3: a handful of earth, a handful of sky and everything in between.
0: For Octavia, good science fiction was about basing things in the textures of the here and now, the details of the lands and worlds that we live in. It's where she'd use her notes, grab some of the earth, look up towards the clouds in the sky, and write everything in between. It's from this place of knowing and the familiar that she would ease her readers in, then make a big leap towards something else, towards new worlds entirely. In her work, Octavia foretold things we've been through recently, that California would be on fire and that the skies would turn orange, or that an authoritarian presidential candidate would rise to power with the slogan, Make America Great Again. When people ask how she could tell the future, she would just say that she looked at the environment around her and gave the conditions that she observed about 30 years to turn into full-blown crises. I guess what I'm trying to convey here is that the backdrop of California was especially important to Octavia, who she was, but also for her books. They couldn't have happened anywhere else. The highways she would walk were the same ones her characters would walk on their long journeys, trying to flee environmental disaster. And the land that she was talking about is indigenous land. And it holds knowledge, history, and it holds memories. This land specifically, where I'm writing out this narration in East Oakland, is the land of the Lashon Ohlone people in the unceded territory of Huchin. And it is stolen indigenous land. When I walk past streets in Oakland, I can't help but think of all of these embodied histories. I walk the same streets where my parents walk, where my family members used to walk, where EJ used to walk, where people whose names I won't ever know have walked for years and years and years. It sometimes feels ghostly. Like Octavia, E.J. Montgomery is someone who understood the memories that land holds and all of the emotions it can evoke. Along with being a curator and organizer of Black artistic spaces, E.J. had her own artistic practice. She loved working with metal to make jewelry and small ancestral boxes. She was also a really talented printmaker. Her abstract works are so breathtaking. They're made up of these tiny little brushstrokes that create these elaborate storms of color that are meant to represent nature and memory. Here she is explaining her work in her own words.
1: Yes, the are memory, memory objects, whether it's memory of my mother, memory of fish in a pond, memory of the water hitting against the rocks, At the beach.
0: In the last episode, we looked at what it means to move and migrate somewhere. Like EJ did when she moved from New York to Los Angeles. Or like Noah Purifoy did when he moved from Los Angeles to Joshua Tree, where he built his outdoor museum. It's what black folks and black artists have done for centuries, venturing out on their own to spaces where we can truly be free. But what exactly do these places and landscapes look and feel like? Where exactly are we going to host a future of Black art? In California, in the Bay, where it's temperate year-round? Could they exist outside, in the open, on a body of water? Will it feel like First Fridays at the corner of Broadway and Telegraph, like the Redwoods up at Joaquin Miller? Will it feel like the Watts Towers, like Black art galleries and murals in downtown Oakland, DIY shows and Old Victorians? Maybe it feels like shows at the New Parish or Joffrey's Inner Circle on New Year's Eve. Will it be stationary or nomadic? Wherever our futures lie, how can we collaborate with the land and remain engaged with its indigenous histories, present, and futures? To imagine our black art landscapes, I think we have to look at some artists who explicitly incorporate the landscapes of California and its histories during the 20th century. Artists like Octavia Butler, EJ, and someone named Richard Mayhew.
2: I think it it chose me instead of my choosing it. Uh, Painting uh, was uh, the Hudson River uh, artist used to come to the coast in Lone Island. And I used to go out there and watch them. And uh, it kind of turned me on to see they reached in their paint and images come out the end of the brush on the canvas. And it really fascinated me. There was this magic there of the beauty of painting. And uh, so I sat there and just watched them a lot. And they they were curious about this young man sitting there and staring at them without moving. So they took me on as
0: an apprentice. That's Richard Mayhew, and he's a landscape painter. He's currently 96 and lives in Santa Cruz. Richard grew up on the East Coast, and like he said earlier, he learned painting from the Hudson River School of Painters. It was a movement of painters who created really romantic depictions of nature on the East Coast. It's what you might think of when you think of your typical landscape painting. Billowing clouds and green pastoral mountains, light shining through the side of the painting. It's these painters that Richard would watch and that taught him everything about how to paint landscapes.
2: Well, I learned how to, uh, mixing paint and uh, how to make your own paint. And also learning to make a uh, stretch canvas and put the grounds on the canvas instead of uh, and all of that was a, actually a learning process of the sensitivity of, of developing as a painter. It, it was more to it than just doing a painting, you had to learn how to put you know, preparations.
0: But Richard's paintings are a bit different than your typical landscape painting. They are bright and neon colored with large cloudy brushstrokes. He creates these abstractions that almost feel like the after image of the actual landscape. They're not necessarily realistic depictions, but they evoke a certain feeling within you. He thinks a lot about the theories of color when making these types of paintings.
2: And the, the after image which the cameras are based on, that the eye automatically has a, a, uh, a negative of what it sees. And so with color, how much you're involved with the afterimage of, of red is a green. So after you stare at red for a while and you see a light area, it's green. And so I've learned how to manipulate the eye in terms of motion and then using landscapes to do that. I started using shapes in the landscape and see how that affects the eye because if you're using basic shapes and a combination of color together, it creates a certain uh, optic response. The history
0: of American landscape painting is now widely understood to be a really complicated one. The Hudson River School, they pioneered this style of painting during the 19th century in the midst of the westward expansion of the United States. While some of these artists did have a genuine appreciation for nature, these paintings were basically ads for colonialism and westward expansion. It was about promoting a sense of idealized beauty as inherent to the United States, that this land was exceptional and special, which is why it had to be conquered in order to build a quote-unquote exceptional nation. They depict a wild and empty land waiting to be discovered and settled. What these paintings leave out are the acts of genocide against indigenous people in the name of this expansion, or the enslaved black people toiling away on plantations and building the American infrastructure. The Hudson River School, the school of painters that Richard learned from, they promoted a sense of romanticized beauty from a white colonial settler's perspective. In his early years, Richard says he painted these types of works as well. But as he began to come into his own style as an artist, he started to flip these ideas on their head.
2: Well, my paintings in terms of Afro-American and Native American, their blood is in the soil of the the United States. So that's part of nature. And uh, there's a whole understanding of Native Americans in terms of the phenomena of nature, because they they survived and lived very well, very healthy existence until the Europeans came and brought disease.
0: As an Afro-Indigenous artist himself, instead of these romanticized notions of expansion and conquest, Richards tries to create works focused on feelings, something that he describes as the sensitivity of nature.
2: I said a dewdrop drop on a leaf. There's a certain sensitivity there. And the shadow beneath the bush is a mystery there, right? And so that always intrigued me, too. When I was doing my paintings, there was this little mystique of shapes and patterns and areas in nature, right? I went uh, to a place, I think where it was in, in Georgia, and this is where I was a plantation there, and then invited me to order us to go paint in this area and I felt out that that was a plantation that had slaves and uh, there was a whole big bushy area around there, and I was looking and saying, I wonder what happened in that area down there how slaves were being treated. So I did a painting of that area based on just a feeling about that area. So that encouraged more and more about feelings. And it says, so what what does love look like? What color is it? So I had to learn to get involved with that. What does fear look like? What color is fear? (laughs) What color is desire? So I had to learn. I wanted to get real involved with emotional interpretation. So my paintings became more and more involved with just emotional feelings and what shapes to use to define that particular feeling.
0: Richard says he gained a lot of the inspiration for his landscape paintings from when he would drive back and forth between California and the East Coast.
2: I drove across the United States from New York to San Francisco three times. And every time I went across the country, I see nature differently because I've learned from one trip to the other and understood what I was looking at. And the feeling of that, because it was different time periods of the year that I went back and forth. And uh, it it was a pleasurable encounter. But you, uh, my mind was registering the feeling of nature as I w- went back and forth.
0: The landscape of California and somewhere like the Bay Area is special. It's undeniable. To Octavia Butler, EJ, and Richard Mayhew, the diverse California landscape was absolutely fundamental to their work and who they are as artists. But I think sometimes we as Black folks can have a somewhat fraught relationship with nature, feeling as though it's not ours. They're feelings that I've dealt with throughout my whole life, that because my family didn't go on camping trips, that I couldn't have a relationship with nature. I think, for me, my sense of being able to commune with nature on my own came when I bought my first car at 22. Drive 20 minutes from downtown Oakland, and it feels like you're in a different world amongst the redwoods. I learned that these interactions with nature can really open us up and open our minds to creative expression. It's something that Black artists and Black people, Afro-Indigenous people, have always known. These artists knew that these interactions with nature could directly impact your feelings, and it's these feelings that gave a certain richness to their work. But instead of trying to claim and possess these lands, like white colonizers, how can we in our Black art futures collaborate with them? How can we tap into this embodied knowledge, the histories of the land? How can we honor this land, the unceded indigenous tribal land, and understand these histories are not simply to be seen or spoken, but felt? To Octavia Butler, the land and its histories were fuel. No landscapes were off limits. She wasn't afraid to look at the stars to see what was really out there. Octavia's character Lauren in Parable of the Sower wants to send humanity to live in space, to take root amongst the stars. But how did Octavia herself learn to dream so big? Octavia Butler said that she had a radio imagination she was greatly impacted by what she heard. She couldn't necessarily see her characters, but she could hear them. Like Richard Mayhew, who looks at the shadow of a bush and puts that feeling on the canvas. If the things we hear and see can directly impact our work, what about all the things out there that we can't see, know, and feel.
1: We exist in a world that sometimes we don't necessarily have language to describe, but also, like, the ways in which we continue to do beautiful things, and largely through creative um, practices and culture. And that's that's sort of the things that I focus on. Uh, My name is Sydney, Sydney Kane. I also go by Sage. I'm an artist based out in San Francisco. I work in multimedia. works on paper, on wood, printmaking, um, anything that I can get my hands on. (laughs)
0: Sage Stargate is an artist who grew up in the Bay Area. Now, I wouldn't necessarily describe them as a landscape artist. I don't think they would either. Their works represent these shadowy and sketchy black figures that feel like they leap off the page. They are someone who deal in matters of land, history, and all that we can't see or completely understand. Um, so I've been kind of like seeing your work around the Bay since like I was in high school, like a junior in high school. Like I would go to Somarts and I would like see your works and like they would just really stand out to me because you have these like figures that almost feel like they're kind of like revealing themselves to you like on the page. I was wondering if you could talk about kind of some of the figures that show up in your work, if these figures are ancestors.
1: Mm-hmm. So the process of, um, of revealing through, through pushing aside pigments, like pushing aside and erasing spaces, um, looking at like the sort of nuances, the patterns and like the, the, the surface underneath, um, I'm really interested in sort of like what when we think about like genetics, um and memory, like even the memory that in inanimate, so called inanimate objects have, like drawing on paper, thinking about like where the paper comes from and the processes and like that it was once a tree, you know what I mean, or like how it's been pulpified So I think about like what kind of, you know, the tree was a um a being and then um, pushing the pencil or pigment around um, and then erasing the little small nuances and the patterns, like, okay, what, what is there to say? What comes out? You know what I mean? What mm. What is revealed? You know, if you ever go hiking, like, I, I go hiking a lot. Like, I kind of grew up in the woods, so um, kind of see a lot or imagine a lot of, like, faces and beings in these spaces and, you know, picking up sticks and picking up rocks and picking... You know, looking at leaves and and going into the, like the micro spaces of these things in in the world that have you know that are na- that are in the uh, in the in their natural element. Mm-hmm. And since my process is with the racing for the most part, I like to see what will come out. Mm-hmm. And honestly, the, the sort of conversation regarding around ancestors, it was it was a. More of a dialogue like with myself and as well as audiences and the work, healing this these this this erasure of ability to connect with beyond the um beyond the ways that colonialism has told us that we have to know, right and it's like all our bodies are just like it's just matter, right? <laughs> you can never hear anything beyond like your, your uh you know your ears or see beyond the optics. Um, but art kind of like re- working in that in that sphere revealed to me by talking to other folks, even that, okay, no, this is like ancestors, and this is this is a um, you're tapping into a a tradition and a, and a veneration that is that is that is real so.
0: You said uh, you kind of grew up in the woods. Could you, could you tell me a bit about your growing up in the Bay, and maybe how it's like influenced like your like identity as an artist now?
1: Growing up in the Bay Area, um, yeah, I grew up in I grew up in San Francisco. I grew up in Fillmore, like so. My family is, for the most part, is still still there. You know, my grandmother loves arts. My mother is very creative. Like, my cousins are all very creative. So um, so I've always been sort of supported and and understood in the realms of, like, doing art, like, making things, you know. <laughs> um, and I think, like, the Bay Area sort of, uh, depending on where you go to school at and a little bit of nuances like that, that you'll be supported, um, maybe more than other spaces. Like, but for the... Outside of, outside of that, outside of the institution of um, education, um, meeting people, you know, who were also taking the risk and having the audacity to, like, <laughs> um, to vend and create events to where folks can connect, you know. This is, like, the days before Instagram. <laughs> I think Facebook was kind of a thing, you know what I mean? So the interpersonal sort of... Um, building relationships and connecting on the level of, like, okay, we all love and are, are, are geeking out over, over art and, and other things.
0: And where, like, where were the woods that you would kind of go to when you were
1: the a kid? Woods. Let's see. I grew up in a, I, I, I was a part of a youth program uh, based in the Mission. So it's just, like, black and brown youth, and their focus was doing outdoor education um so we would we would do a, like week-long like trips in sequoia and shasta mm-hmm. and um river rafting you know hiking all the time you know all the all the stuff all the stuff that folks say only white folks do right <laughs> that was the sort of ways and where i saw how it is to develop family outside of like you know your blood but also to develop family like outside with yourself you know
0: And as an artist that grew up in the bay and is still living there, do you like find comfort in being the place that you grew up? Is it like hard? I, I don't wanna project, but I know for me, like growing up in East Oakland and just seeing the ways that like it's changed, like I was like, I gotta go somewhere else. Like this is almost too this is almost too hard for me. So I, I'm mm-hmm. just curious about how your relationship to the bay has been like kind of amongst gentrification and all this other stuff.
1: Yeah, my yeah Uh, let's see um it's hard it's hard it is it's hard because and i i explore this part also in my work like especially with the serious refutations in the tension of witnessing things being something being taken away from you or you being removed from the space like jolted out of something but then you're also still there, right? You also have memories, and other people have memories and stories in, in a space. And that's whether it is, like, our, our physical bodies, like, being in a space, or is it um, even throughout history, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, even throughout centuries, like, so it's like, in, like where do people go? <laughs> where, where, is this, where is somewhere to feel safe at? Right. And that you could just be, you know. Um, and, I mean, I don't know how, how much you can get um, in, you know, being on unceded territory. Like, <laughs> are you always going to be running? Like, or like, being pushed out? Or not running, but, like, being, being pushed out. Yeah, a lot of the things that re- um, show up in my work revolve around transition. I work in the things of, like, place and space. And afterlives. ability to remember through um, through our genetics, our traditional practices, and the processes of um, revealing and revelation.
0: I love the idea of being able to remember through your genetics. Would you feel comfortable kind of elaborating on that a little bit more? I love that.
1: Remembering through genetics is sort of uh, what is it that we carry in um, in our cellular being, right? And, and in what ways are those, those memories passed down, uh, whether it's through the encoding of the exchange between where we ascend from, our folks, uh, our lineages.
0: Totally. I mean... Please correct me if I'm wrong but I feel like when I think about like cells and things on like a molecular level but also thinking about like quantum physics it kind of feels like it has this like sci-fi like lean a little bit just the way that you're describing things
1: yeah I was always interested in in science fiction you know Aside from pointing out all of the like all of the holes and the strangeness in those and people's imaginaries that have been popularized around uh, the future or futurity and, and whatnot. I I found interest in sort of like the languages within science communities to describe phenomena that have been described in other ways by indigenous um, cultures and uh, ways of knowing that have been appropriated for the usage of you know the validity of the science quote-unquote science communities right um so what are some of the phenomenons you're thinking about
0: like is there something you're thinking about
1: yeah i think a lot about um like extra century really like, for instance like extra century like perceptions and um uh, um so like i was looking at this you know This whole, like, project, like, Stargate project, you know, where the Department of Defense was, like, researching these people who had uh, psychic abilities, you know, and utilizing that for um, trying to weaponize that, right, for um, military reasons. And that's sort of a theme that comes up a lot in science fiction films, right? I like to challenge the idea of, like, things not being in existence, right, and the ways in which whether we visibly practice Uh, such things and whether we uh, practice them through like a sort of innate kind of being, right? And how that's sort of a a reclamation, reclamation and acknowledgement in ways in which could be a source of power and resistance towards the colonial projects (laughs) that we're under, yeah. So I
0: wanted to talk a little bit about um, your recent work, Radio Imagination, um, where you kind of like take this idea from Octavia Butler, where she's like, I have an imagination that hears, right? Could you tell me a little bit about that work, what inspired it and how the ideas of Radio Imagination show up
1: in that work for you? So... So, yeah, I was initially asked to do a portal in relationship to um, her Octavia Butler's work. So I just thought about the ways in which Octavia Butler's work influenced my practice uh, creatively. Um, so I was like, OK, well, we're talking about, you know, creativity and expansion of the mind and believing which is a lot of um, believing in what, what it is that we do and affirming ourselves. And I'm going to just like, kind of use this to affirm and just trust whatever comes out. Like So radio imagination um, fit perfectly in the sense of her, um, it's in the sense of her like listening, listening to words and trusting that the mind and letting the mind kind of go where it's, um, kind of fill in the blanks right everyone has the um, openness to relate to a figure in a particular way the similarly to when we read like everybody every single person has a different image of this character of the situation even the, the reading of what is even happening so um, so radio imagination was that it's also connected to like um, to frequencies like radio um, doesn't need to speak and you utilize sound. Yeah, this is
0: one of my last questions. It's one that I have asked every person that I've interviewed. What are the Black artistic spaces outside of museums that you dream of? And could you paint a picture of one for me?
1: Thankfully, gratefully, I have a blueprint of that because they they, they have been in existence. Like, they are either... Here, or unfortunately, have had to close or move, um, and those spaces have looked like um, healing spaces that are that's for art, but also places to commune with other creators, other creatives, um, places that feel safe, you know, for queer queer folks, for femmes, for trans folks, for Black people to be um, to feel to feel good in. Places that feed, uh, places that have music, places that are have twenty so four hour, you know, access. Um, I would also see more. So, like places that it's just like, oh, Yo, you got a rhizo here and <laughs> rise, grab, and you know, some of the things that a lot of us, you know, want want to be able to practice more and explore more in uh, in different mediums. Printmaking and all of the things, you know, and maybe it has a lot of plants too. <laughs> but I, I, I dream that those places, you know, are also like fully invested into a place like that that feels secure. That's that's um, yeah, that feels like home.
0: I think what I'm taking away here is a real yearning for our Black art spaces of the future to be inspired by the feelings and moods of nature. Understand nature as the art itself. It's something that is ours, and no dream is too big. If we can hear it, if we can feel it, if we can feel drawn to it, then it is possible. There are things out there even beyond our wildest beliefs. I think our future art spaces have to be a handful of earth, a handful of sky, and everything in between. We have to be rooted in this earth and understand the histories that have brought us here today. We have to understand that land is not something to be dominated, but something to be in collaboration with. That it holds histories and spirits. By paying attention to the histories of these spaces and all that's around us, there's so much we can unlock. Where EJ walked, where Octavia walked, where Black and Indigenous people have and continue to walk, they are still here with us today. EJ, it's so nice to meet you. How are you doing? Hello good yeah awesome thank you for listening to episode three of raw material visions of black Faturity. this podcast is a production of sf moma this episode was written, produced, and sound designed by me, Babette Thomas, with production help from Maisa Plant graham Erica Gangsey, Santino Gonzalez, Liza Yeager, and Kevin Carr. The music you heard in this episode is from the illustrious Georgia Ann Muldrow, performing as G.O.T. Be sure to check out her music wherever you listen. And thank you to the history makers for that clip of E.J., We'll be back in two weeks with episode four. I'll see you then.